Hi, this is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to this Disney at Work podcast, where we talk about best in business ideas from the heritage of Disney that you can apply back to your own organization. And we are taking you back today. Well, we are taking you on this day 50 years ago, which is the day that Roy O. Disney passed away. But our discussion happens between this day and, well, we all know how Roy O. Disney's leadership in the wake of Walt Disney's own passing in 1966 ultimately led to the creation of Walt Disney World 50 years ago on October 1st, 1971. Clearly, you know, you know we're in a 50th anniversary. But there were two little known but important events, decisions that were made by Roy himself in the wake of the Florida opening just weeks after all of the hoopla at the beginning. And all of it would happen before this date 50 years ago when he passed away. Both of these decisions would create great consequences for the organization moving forward over the years to come. So on this, the 50th anniversary of Royal Disney's passing, we will look at those two decisions that came within two months after the park's opening. And then we're gonna consider what we can learn about Roy's decision-making in our own individual worlds where we too have to make decisions. Be sure to check in at disneyatwork.com to our page, our post for this podcast, because many of the souvenirs that we offer you are there. When we say souvenirs is we're not going to just share with you these stories, but we're going to give you some, some good questions to ask yourself that can be applied back to your own organization, back to your own experience. So be sure to check out, uh, yeah. Uh, DisneyAtWork.com and be sure to subscribe while you are there. Let's talk about the first of these. Now, so you understand where we are at at this point in the juncture. There have been some really um, good things happening and some really hard things happening. Roy was exhausted by the opening. Well, everything that led up to the opening of the park. Of, of, of the entire resort, I should say. In fact, he was very, he was exasperated at his executives because he felt like there were a lot of cost overruns that he was not anticipating. And he himself was trying to bring this entire project to a close without having any debt. That was an important thing. It was an important thing for people back then who came through the depression and um, should be an important thing for people like us today, but it was an important thing to Roy O. Disney to be able to open up Walt Disney World debt-free. And so he got through that. And then he ended up seeing the Sunday night show on the wonderful world of Disney that opened uh, the that showcased the opening of the resort and he was so disappointed by that and and if you haven't seen it you ought to check it out it's wonderful because it's got some highlights like julie andrews in it but it also shows empty parks empty resorts empty spaces they did that because partly they hadn't quite completely open at any rate if you compare that to other 
television shows that Walt had done showcasing Disneyland. You know you see a packed, uh, busy, and excited, and enthusiastic uh, park. You didn't see that here. And watching that that Sunday night, he was so, so disappointed how it looked. Conversely, um, and, and conversely, uh, when Thanksgiving weekend came, the Friday after Thanksgiving, there was a ginormous attendance bump. It didn't happen all weekend, but it happened on that particular day. So bad that, that they had to close the gates, that they had cars backed up to 192. This was, so he's kind of in this emotional roller coaster of events that are occurring. And he's seeing, oh, you know, and by the way, Wall Street loved the news that they had had this amazing Thanksgiving weekend, or at least this day after Thanksgiving. The rest of the weekend was good too. They had more people on that one day than they had in the first month of operation at Walt Disney World. That's how big that um, that day was. So um, at any rate, all of that said and done, and another part of the roller coaster, Roy suffered a, a terrible blow now, Roy and Walt, in many ways, were amazing and close, but they also had their challenges in their relationship. And the person that was closest to Roy O. Disney was not Walt Disney, necessarily. It was his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law, during this very same time period, dies of pancreatic cancer. Mitch... Francis was his name. Mitch had been Roy's closest friend. And in the words of Bob Thomas in Building a Company, which is Royal Disney's book, perhaps, quote, perhaps his only confidant, they had worked side by side in the Kansas City Bank, canoed together down the Mississippi. Roy had gone on a blind date with Edna at her brother Mitch's behest. The two young men had enlisted in the Navy together. After the Disney brothers had established their company, Roy convinced Mitch to bring his family to California and work as purchasing manager at the studio. Roy and Mitch could sit in a lawn swing and talk for hours, not about studio fairs, but their families and the memories of a lifetime. Roy's daughter-in-law, Patty, remembers, quote, when Mitch died, it took the starch out of Roy O. End of quote. You can imagine with this Herculean effort to open up Walt Disney World that the one person he could talk to, particularly about financial matters, was now gone. He had, and, and, and this, of course, is in the wake of having lost his brother um, many years before in 1966. So, so it is just, it's just a big blow to Roy at a time where he has to make some very important decisions. Roy's plan at this point was to host the annual shareholders meeting in February and then go on a very long cruise with Edna to cross the Pacific to, I believe, Australia. This was going to be their time to finally get away and to, and to really begin that process of retiring from the company. That moment will never come. 
But there's some things he needs to do before retirement and before the events that really did come into play. And to and to talk about this, I want to refer to just a fantastic book. If you don't have it, it's Reality Land by David Koenig, True Life Adventures of Walt Disney World. It's really the most comprehensive book to date of the Walt Disney World um, resort and all that is in it. And to understand this period of time, know that Roy, in an effort to make this work again, debt-free, had entered into a relationship with USS Steel to build and consequently run the resort hotels. Now, you probably heard about the modular construction. They had built a, um, a manufacturing plant a couple of miles away, and USS Steel was building these these rooms that had everything down to the towel rack on them and then sliding them into play in the resort, in the, into the hotel, uh, into the contemporary A-frame, but also into the Polynesian. And, and it was all going to be this amazing new uh, technology and industry and so forth. Of course, they knew nothing about hotels, but they brought in a bunch of hoteliers from 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 who had ran hotels because Disney had never ran a hotel. If you if you're confused by this and think, well, what about the Disneyland Hotel? That was ran by another person who had a license to run um, that hotel. And so, and so here here we are now. If you had a chance, and you if you haven't had a chance, there is a previous Disney at Work podcast. Look for the one on Labor Day. Because this is actually, the park opened up on October 1st, 1971, but the actual first time the park opened up to people who came in with their families and stayed and ate and went on the rides, that was actually Labor Day weekend that, um, that the event occurred. And the reason it did is because Disney was way behind. They were behind in the Magic Kingdom with things like Tomorrowland. Most of the rides were not there other than the Grand Prix Raceway and the Skyway. I want to say that was about the only thing available at that time. Um, and and uh, But as bad as that was, it was far worse over at the Contemporary and the Polynesian. They were way behind because of their involvement with USS Steel. And it just wasn't going well. And it was well, this is where we pick up in David's book. Quote, it took an extra couple of months, but the construction crews finally did complete the contemporary hotel's tower and garden annexes. That still didn't put Disney at rest. One loose end had been nagging at Roy, the deal with U.S. Steel. Though through construction, the relationship between the two companies had been contentious. How would it be once the hotels actually opened? Their agreement was also fraught with potential conflicts, such as who profited from rentals at the U.S. Steel-owned hotels of boats that ran on the Disney-owned lake. Disputes would only grow more complicated as the resort added amenities. Plus, modular construction touted as the wave of the future resulted in a more cost overruns and headaches than benefits. U.S. Steel had forecast that each room would cost 17 thousand to produce actual cost turned out to be closer to one hundred thousand dollars a room 
Now, let me just stop here and say that's an astronomical price to build a room uh, in 1970 dollars. Mind you, at this time, I think we're paying about 25, 35 cents in gas per gallon. So this is this is an entirely different world and they are spending now mind you that's a that's a kind of a tricky figure because what you're doing is you're taking the overall cost of the restaurants and the hotel and the pools and everything and then dividing it up against the number of hotel rooms but still the cost is way over uh, the borders of the pride land as they say in Lion King to continue they gain no cost savings by pre-enclosing the main open portion of a room. The only real advantage was in prefabricating specialty areas such as bathrooms. The factory was used to produce prefab bathrooms for a couple of other hotel projects before being shut down. So, in early December 1971, as his final major business transaction, Roy arranged for Disney to pay U.S. Steel $50 million for its interest in the hotels, as well as assume all remaining costs of completing the contemporary. Disney had already invested $28.5 million designing, equipping, uh, furnishing, and helping to construct the hotels and expected to spend at least $12 million more to finish construction. Let me just stop here and say... Um, this is the moment where Roy had to make a very difficult decision. He is trying to keep the company debt free. He wants the resort to be successful. He knows that this partnership is not working. He's got to decide between the money and the long-term benefit to the company. Add to this, the one person who would really understand the money picture is now gone because he has passed away, his closest friend, his brother-in-law. And so Roy's alone on this. Now, here's an interesting story. Few, if any, know. I happened, when I was with Disney, uh, to be working on a project with uh, the whole watercraft division. And one of the skippers of the boats so to speak, was with me one day and we were out on the seven seas and he said, can I share with you a very unique experience I had one time? He joined the company at the start of Walt Disney World. He was an opening day cast member and he was uh, piloting the boats at that time as he still did uh, many years later. This was 25 years later when I first, when I met him. And he said, um, one occasion, I'm docked, and along comes Roy Disney. And he turns to me and he says, do you mind if you take me for a little sail? Well, what are you going to say to Roy, right? So Roy boards the boat, and he takes him out onto the lake and sails. Not a whole lot is said. Roy is very quiet during this period of time. Finally, he spoke up, and he said, I'm just really struggling. I've got to make a very difficult decision today and I just don't know what to do. It's a hard decision. He didn't tell the skipper what the decision was. But 
about either in the evening news or the next day, the skipper learned that Disney had bought USS Steel. You can see, you can just see what is going through a man who has gone through a whole lifetime, who planned on retirement, who had come out of retirement to build his brother's dream, who has now gone through the exhaustion of building Walt Disney World, and now he has to ask himself whether the company should take on debt in order to acquire another part of the organization. Very difficult. Can you imagine, though, what would have happened if Disney had not, if Roy had not purchased USS Steel? Probably USS Steel would not have stayed in business. They probably would have sold it, maybe to a hotelier that could see the benefit. It would have been a divided resort. And many resorts, when you go to them, are like that. And in fact, the Swan and Dolphin sits on Walt Disney World Resort, and it's not owned um, technically by the company. The land is leased and so forth. But, but you know what makes Walt Disney World Resort so unique is its hotels. And they're not perfect hotels, but they're not Marriott stamped. And uh, by the way, I love Marriott. And I've, I'm, I'm a million... I've done a million rooms with them. Um, oh, I have titanium as status. Let me put it that way with them because I've done so much with them. But but they're not stamped hotels. Each one of them is so unique and so very different. And at uh, any rate, it goes on to say, quote, Disney was never a very good partner with anybody, admitted company attorney Phil Smith. Disney liked to do things its way. The deal with U.S. Steel was originally made as a matter of money. It was a convoluted deal. We leased the land to U.S. Steel to build the building. They were going to own the building and we were going to manage it. We'd want to manage it our way. And the concern was it might not have been the way they wanted to do it. We just felt that we'd be better off running it ourselves. It was an amicable parting. There was no litigation. They were willing. It was just decided that the relationship wasn't going to work that well. For Disney, the purchase formally removed the necessity of having hotels managed by a separate division composed of outside hotel professionals. They could now run the hotels the Disney way. Now, what the Disney way looks like moving forward, that's a whole nother chapter. Uh, what we do know uh, is that Disney had planned on its next hotel being the Asian Hotel, a grand hotel that would have been built at the site of the Grand Floridian, which is there today. The reality of it is, is because they had to take on that debt or they had to pay out their money in order to purchase um, USS Steel's interest, they didn't have the money to build that hotel. And consequently, the others, the Persian and Venetian, went their way. In its wake, Disney did do some immediate hotel work. Um, first of all, adding more campgrounds to uh, what is uh, Fort Wilderness Campground, campground sites, I mean, not campgrounds, but campground sites. Secondly, uh, they thought that, and this goes into our new leadership, which we're gonna talk about uh, uh, in a moment with the company, but um, uh, the thought was, let's build a hotel where um, the 
golf courses were. And so as a result, those, uh, the, um, what was known as the golf resort, which later became known as the Disney Inn, which later became known as Shades of Green as um, the armed forces took over uh, that uh, hotel property. Well, long and short, the big hotels didn't get built. Other smaller things did. And then also uh, the whole motor in area in Buena Vista, known as um, the Lake Buena Vista Hotels, which uh, included the Grosvenor and the Dutch Inn and those hotels by what is now Disney Springs, those got underway as well. But again, that was third parties coming in to build the resort. So uh, it would be actually uh, a number of years back. Well, it would be 1988 before Disney opened up another Disney hotel. And that Disney hotel would actually be, um, well, actually, that's not true. Well, it is true that it was 1988. It was Disney's Grand Floridian. It was followed by Disney's um, uh, Caribbean Beach Resort. So, And then a whole flood of hotel rooms came out under the Michael Eisner era, um, which Michael Eisner had actually considered at one point um, t sending the hotels over to Marriott and letting them run that. I'm glad they didn't. And I am glad that Roy made the decisions he did. But they were hard decisions for a man who had come from the Depression, who didn't like to spend money, but could see the long-term benefit. Now, before I go to my second story, this is where we turn to these souvenirs that we get for you. They're complimentary souvenirs for you and your organization because they're questions that you can ask for yourself. You're never going to be managing a hotel. But ask yourself this. What makes for a good partner? If you're going to go into partnership with someone, what would make them a good partner? Next, what do you compromise when you get into a good partnership? And is that sacrifice worth the compromise that you make? Ask yourself, what are the hard decisions you have to make in your own life? As a leader, as an individual, wherever you are, what are those hard decisions? What are the little decisions made along the way that make the big decisions easier? What are the consequences in making or not making a decision? How do you gain greater control or lose control as a result of not making a decision? How do you allow yourself the time and space to reflect and make smart decisions? And who do you have around you to help as a mentor or listener? All of these are at the core of one of the most difficult and final decisions Roy made financially for the organization. But there was another decision Walt or that Roy had to make before going into retirement. And it was a timely decision because, well, because of events that would soon befall Roy at that time. Those decisions had to do with who was taking Roy Disney's place. To understand this story, we need to go back to the final days of Walt Disney World opening and where Roy O. was at that time in his 
feelings about the team and where they were at. And I want to quote uh, from Bob Thomas's Building a Company. Uh, it's a great biography on Royal Disney. He had also been the one who created the original uh, official biography of Walt Disney. You, those are two books you have to have in your library. And so let me start here. Roy's pleasure at seeing Walt Disney World successfully launched was tempered by his concern for the expenditures that had been made without his oversight. He placed the blame on several of the top executives, especially Card Walker. Several weeks after the opening of the park, Roy told one of his uh, attorneys, Luther Marr, I want to clip Card Walker's wings. I want to put in the executive committee minutes that every expenditure will have to be approved by Wed Chief Mel Melton. The following day, Don Tatum came to Mars' office. Tatum had heard about Roy's request. He warned that if it was entered into the minutes, he would have to tell the outside directors that Roy was not thinking right, that he was forgetful about things he had been told. Don and Card still rankled over the dressing down Roy had dealt them before their underlings on the day after Walt Disney World opened. They claimed Roy had been informed about the expenditures. He said he had not been. Had Roy become senile? Neither Marr nor any of Roy's associates nor his family thought so. Were Card and Don eager to establish their own primacy since Roy had planned to retire? The question remains unanswered. The writing of the minutes was postponed and events made it unnecessary. Despite his discontent with Card and Don, Roy still had to deal with the vital matter of succession. Originally, he had envisioned a dual presidency, but as in all corporations or any other organization, that rarely works. Don was not a real aggressive guy, observes Roy Edward Disney. I think he would have been pretty happy to find a way to accommodate a dual presidency. Card had a different personality. He dominated meetings with his size and his persuasiveness. Don was a conciliator. Card was a leader. Roy agonized over how to resolve the matter. Then one evening, Roy and Edna had invited Roy, Edward, and Patty for one of Edna's Midwest-style dinners. While Edna and Patty washed the dishes, Roy invited his son out to the front porch for a chat. Roy lit a cigar, and the two men enjoyed the warm valley evening, silent except for the calling of crickets and the constant whir of the nearby freeway. Quote, I've been thinking a lot about who should run the company after I retired, Roy said, and I've come to a decision. It'll be card. He asked Roy Edward for his opinion. Well, the son replied, I really like Don Tatum an awful lot more than I like Cardwalker. So do I, Roy said but this is how it's going to be. So, in the days to follow, Card Walker is put in charge of the company with Don Tatum at his side. And the two were really the dominant force that would continue past Roy O. Disney well into almost the time Michael Eisner came on board. And in fact, uh, well, 
much of what happened during this company's time can be can be attributed to Cardwalker. He ultimately had to make the decision whether Epcot would go forward, and if so, what would it look like? In that decision, he determined that it would not be a city, but rather that it would be a, well, a World's Fair type theme park experience. And that's what opened some 10 years later on October 1st of 1982. Um, there is one other decision that Royal Disney made at the same time. He had observed Dick Nunes and his involvement with getting Walt Disney World up and running. And let me tell you, Dick is an individual who has this charisma and leadership and, ah, uh, well, football kind of um, energy to him. And that impressed Roy. Not to say they didn't have some differences and not to say that um, Dick didn't make some poor decisions of his own. One of them being the development of a wave pool structure outside on the island across from Disney's Polynesian Resort. That ended up being a financial fiasco and uh, did not end up working very well as it wiped out the white sand beaches of the Polynesian. However, Dick Nunes was, um, was a hard worker and one who made things happen. The great story, and it's aligned very well with our earlier discussion of the contemporary, is as the last uh, involvement was occurring uh, in trying to get the contemporary resort ready for opening, uh, they had brought in a bunch of University of uh, Central Florida students to kind of help out with laying sod. And if you're not familiar with sod here in Florida, you can actually buy it by the patch, kind of a foot foot and a half by a foot and a half and you just take each patch and you put it together but yeah kids they don't know what they're doing and so they say how do you how do you put this down and and dick nunes's great response was green side up that that expression from dick nunes really suggests that you do whatever it takes to get the job done and that job by the way was done in the middle of the night to get uh, the contemporary ready for opening. But that was Dick Nunes and that was his nature. And Roy Disney could see that in Dick. As a result, one of his final decisions was to make Dick Nunes head vice president of both Disneyland and Walt Disney World operations. A job that he would continue um, to hold even added, as the company added more parks um, in the years to come. So let's go back to this conversation about these souvenirs that you can ask yourself because you may not be choosing a CEO or a president or a chairman or a vice president, but in selecting others, what are the criteria by which you determine their leadership capacity? How well do you consider who will follow in your footsteps after you move on? How are you at building the next generation of leaders? 
and what part of the organization allows you to foster creativity and innovation. I mentioned this last thing because the one disappointing problem at this point when all three of these gentlemen was put, were put in charge of the parks is that none of them were creative artists. None of them were, were animators. None of them had this sense of imagineering or dreaming up new attractions. They were people who knew how to run an organization and run they did. Dick Nunes's uh, credit the, the standard of Disney as a customer-friendly experience um, continues to resonate today, despite some things which seem to, to, to hit at it. But notwithstanding, one of the great problems that this era was ushering in was that there was really no one creative involved in leading the company. There were many Imagineers and there were many animators, but they were a dying breed. And the next generation, well, Walt had seen that there needed to be a new generation. And um, that's why one of the last two, there were two things Walt had wanted to create. One was the building of Walt Disney World and Epcot. And the second was the building of CalArts, which Roy also helped establish after after Walt's death, but it come and out of that comes the leadership of what is Pixar and Disney animation today. We would not have those if we had not had CalArts. But at this point in the juncture, none of these individuals were in a place of leadership. And there was no one really to lead the company. And those who were most creative were beginning to leave. Speaking of leaving, well, that brings us to this day, 50 years ago. It was a day in which uh, Roy O. Disney and his wife Edna were going to take their grandchildren to Disneyland. The reason they were going to take their grandchildren to Disneyland was because a couple of days prior, their... Um, uh, grandson, Roy um, Patrick Disney. So you have Roy O. Disney, um, and then we have his son, Roy E. Disney, who would come and play a role and during the Eisner era. And then you had Roy Patrick Disney, who was 14, had done something I shouldn't do on a house, living in Toleka Lake while his parents were vacationing in Florida. He and his brother, Tim, had climbed out of their bedroom window onto a slate roof. Rain had fallen. The slate was slippery. Roy Patrick had stepped onto a canvas awning and fell through it. Um, the long and short of it was that um, Roy Patrick fell to the earth in a pretty bad way and uh, taken immediately or shortly thereafter to St. Patrick's Hospital Roy Patrick, Roy O's grandson, was pronounced dead on arrival. But we'll work on him, said an attendant, going back to Bob Thomas's book. Two hours later, the report came, he's alive, but we don't know what will happen to him. Patty and Roy Edward heard the news. They got came back from Florida as quickly as they could, and all of them began to take turns 
over the next weeks as Roy Patrick sat in a coma in the hospital across from the studio. Of course, this is playing a big... (laughs) No one wants to bury their son, and certainly no one wants to think about burying their grandchild. And so uh, this was a painful time for Roy. And, uh, but a decision was made while Patty um, watched, Patty, while the, uh, Patty and Roy E. were watching their son, they would take the other grandchildren to Disneyland to see the Christmas parade. And um, as they got ready on that Sunday morning, Roy got his hat and coat and then he put it down. He said, I don't feel like going down there. I don't think I'll go. He had been complaining about some kind of cloud over his vision. His eye doctor examined him and delayed prescribing new glasses until blood tests could be made. Roy didn't take it seriously, and he postponed undergoing the test. But he didn't feel well, and he got undressed and went back to bed. Edna, not knowing what to do with grandson, ended up taking Roy E. Disney with him while Patty kept an eye on Roy Patrick in the hospital. Uh, Patty called Roy O, her her father-in-law, twice that day, and although he sounded kind of grouchy, he was feeling all right. Edna and Roy E. with the grandchildren were at Disneyland, but Edna was not feeling really comfortable about circumstances around them at that time, and she felt like as soon as the parade was over, they needed to get back to their home in Toluca Lake. Susan remembers, before we left the house, Grandma had put a pot on the stove with two cans of soup in it in case grandpa got hungry when we walked in the kitchen i saw it was still there it had not been touched i knew something was wrong and i made a beeline to the bedroom he was lying on the floor i called my dad and my grandmother and they came in grandpa said to her i called you and i called you and you didn't come Roy was lifted to the bed, and his son soon stood over him anxiously. Dad, if you can hear me, say something. Roy Edward pleaded. His father opened his eyes and muttered, What? Then he fell into a coma. Bob Thomas continues in his book by saying, Once again, the two families, Roy and Waltz, gathered for their mournful vigil on the fourth floor of St. Joseph Hospital. This time the anxiety was doubled. Roy lay in room 421, only his breath disclosing a sign of life. His grandson and namesake remained in perilous condition directly below in room 321. Despite the brave words exchanged by the family members, Roy's condition was hopeless. The nun spoke in whispers to Edna explained that her husband's brain was dead and only the life-sustaining apparatus was keeping him alive. Edna consented that the effort should be discontinued. Roy Oliver Disney died on December 20th, 1971, of a massive brain hemorrhage. He was 78 years old. Subsequently, he would be buried. And unlike his brother, who actually the burial was very quick and very, very private, I believe there were some seven, 800 people who actually came out to Roy um, Disney's funeral. People like Ray Bulger, Meredith Wilson, Dean Jones, Carl Malden. 
Curiously, um, two days later, um, well, uh, a week later, after the funeral, or after Roy O. Disney passed away, a week later, Roy Patrick had begun to regain his senses. He gazed out the hospital window and noticed the studio flag was at half staff. What's that for? He asked his parents. Your grandfather has died, he was told. A year would pass before the boy returned to normal. The Disney story is a legendary story. It is, and Roy O. Disney's story and his family is as amazing as is Walt Disney's story in so many different ways, but nevertheless, so amazing. I hope that you can take something at this holiday period with you that makes you remember what matters most about this season and this holiday. We thank you for joining us for this Disney at Work podcast, and we hope that you have a terrific Christmas, but know that we have more podcasts to come before and after Christmas. I know a lot of podcasters kind of go on hiatus. We are not. I was a few days late getting this together, but I felt like today was the day to do this podcast. I hope that you have a wonderful holiday season. We'll be back in a few days before Christmas, so be sure to join us. Be sure to subscribe. And in the words of Sinbad's Storybook Voyage, follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day. We'll see you real soon.